Welcome to Architecture Insights, a podcast series produced by the New South Wales Architects Registration Board. My name is Di Snape and I'm here in the ARB's Purple Podcast booth with my co-host and our very own registrar, Tim Horton. Hi, Tim. Hi, Di. Welcome to Architecture Insights. In this next few episodes of Architecture Insights, we're going to hear from architects whose careers have benefited from an extraordinary gift. They've all been recipients of the very influential but actually quite little known Byra Hadley Travelling Scholarship, which is Australia's richest annual bequest for architecture. How about that? Tim, let's talk about who was Byra Hadley. Byra Hadley was an architect and educator. He was born in 1872 in England, came to Australia and uh, took charge of the course at Sydney Technical College and under him it became one of the great schools of architecture um, known around the world. It was the first school of architecture in Australia, wasn't it? It was, it was, and Byra was a big part of that. He was recognised not only for his teaching but also for some of his buildings which still stand in Sydney. If anybody knows, the Mitre 10 on Pitt Street. It's a Byra Hadley building. So when did he make this bequest? Byra's bequest was actually 1938, but it took a while to come to fruition. And so the first Byra Hadley was Bryce Mortlock in 1951, who actually studied the architecture of monumentality. Uh, right. uh, Bryce Mortlock, of course, went on to found Anchor Mortlock and Woolley, which itself had a very yeah. proud tradition in Sydney. Somewhat monumental. You might say. Um, and from a quick head count, I think that we've there have been 202 alumni of the scholarship since 1951. Mm. It's pretty impressive. Over that, and, and we're told that means around $3 million has been part of Byra's gift over the last 65 wow. years, which is pretty amazing, which again makes it a fairly rare event in Australia, I think. So we've asked a fairly diverse bunch of those alumni to tell us about their Byra experience. In this episode, we'll talk to Dr. Deborah Deering, who's currently the North District Commissioner for the Greater Sydney Commission. And to do this, we've asked, uh, and I want to bring in here our host for the series, uh, curator and producer Jan Ryan, who speaks with uh, Deborah. Uh, Jan is herself a philanthropist, understands the world of design, and she is speaking with Deborah, uh, a recipient of a scholarship in 1986. In 1986, you went off to Europe uh, with this Byra Hadley scholarship, and you were looking at cooperative housing. Seems like a long time ago, but it was really cool in those days, cooperative housing. Yes, well, I had previously studied in Copenhagen and whilst I'd been studying urban design, I was aware of this new housing form, which I actually thought had some relevance for other countries other than Denmark. Uh, It was housing type, which was very popular with young professionals. There were groups of between 10 and 40 units in any development, but they had their special attributes were a lot of common facilities common facilities including shared cooking, shared dining, shared living spaces, shared children's play. And a lot of the work in those cooperatives were actually, was was shared, was basically shared support for young professional people who are very, very busy. And that was new at the time. What, What were they trying to do? Were they trying to reinvent who we were or how we lived together? Or was it, you know, they wanted housing to be less expensive? What what was driving this at that time? It was a little bit of all of that. It was um, trying to make housing more affordable for them, 
but more importantly, it was a different way of living where they could actually have the freedom to work and their children could actually grow up in an environment with lots of other community members. Yeah. So there was a shared childcare support interaction, it, quite different than living in a single-family home, and there are lots of single-family homes in Denmark. It's not as everyone assumes that it's all apartments, which it isn't. Um, but either in apartments or in single-family homes, often the family unit is a unit. And this was looking at how can we live differently Each of the dwellings in the cooperatives were self-contained, so they had a choice. It wasn't entirely communal. It was actually you could choose to be private at certain times with their own cooking facilities or they could go and live in a more shared context. So it, it, it kind of was a new way of, of looking at community and bringing community back into our lives. Yes, it was. Um, it wasn't the... Some people do it in Asia with extended families where you actually it's a family structure. This is with friends and colleagues. Some of them may well have been family members. Yeah. It was started in the... the, the it was The interest in cooperative housing was actually initiated in the 60s by architects, a group of architects who said, we can probably do this differently. And they did work together and look at what sort of management structures they could put in place, what contracts, what bank loans they could get. It wasn't social housing per se. No. It was an affordable housing to support very busy people. Yeah, it's kind of pioneering a new model, which I'm really interested in, because if we jump ahead to now... 30 years or so on. Sadly, 40 years almost. 40 years, a long time ago, wasn't it? The shared economies really, you know, come into focus again with things like Airbnb and, you know, new ways of looking at how we share our infrastructure, our houses, and how we share ourselves. Do you think that's connected? I do think it's connected. It's perhaps not quite directly to Airbnb. Often people perceive Airbnb to be a financial, a mechanism of earning money. It's it's an alternative to a a job. It's an employment, it's an income generator. Um, I think it's probably more akin to something like home exchange where people go on, on holidays where they either swap houses or they share houses. And many years ago, I actually enrolled in this club called internationalhomeexchange.com or whatever it is, and um, we couldn't actually travel. The intention was always that we would swap houses and go to somewhere for a month or two, somewhere else in the world. Never happened because we could never find the time to do it. But we, on numerous occasions, we actually invited people who wanted to come to Sydney, say, come stay at our house. And it was there was no income generated, but it was a great experience in getting to know other people. I think also what's happening, and I'm really curious about this, and I, I find it fascinating, is that we're looking at the way we use our houses differently. You know, we always think that houses remain the same, but in fact they don't. And this is part of that sort of exploration. It is. Um, it's certainly... I guess it has a lot to do with one's attitude to one's house. I mean, some people and it's quite common, view their house as their very private domain and everything in it is quite precious and they don't want other people touching or being involved with it. It, it, it is based in a certain attitude towards a living space which is not that precious. And certainly for people who actually are relaxed about their possessions and relaxed about their, 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 the, where they put a chair or where they hang a painting, certainly the ability to share brings a lot of rewards. Mm. And that model of a house, I think, and the way in which we inhabit a house and think think differently and experiment with that, 
can apply to a city as well. I think, you know, if you take that idea of what we do with our houses, what we do with our streets, what we do with our suburbs, what we do with our city, and this is a, a big area that you're working in now. And you've had a really deep career. I mean, deep, deep, deep. You started out as an architect. Um, you, know, you started out working on the High Court, um, uh, High Court of Australia in Canberra. And then you went back to um, Denmark, but you studied with the really renowned urban designer, Jan Gell. What drew you to him? Jan had actually been out in Melbourne prior to 86. And I actually studied in Denmark in the late 70s and 1980, around that period, at the turn mm. of the 79-80. Um, but Jan had been out in Melbourne probably five or six years earlier, doing some work in Carlton and some of the inner terrace areas, looking at what makes public space and why certain areas of terrace housing work better than newer forms of either suburban housing or high-rise models. And he was looking at the gradation of the private space of the family house, the semi-private areas in front of a cottage, and the public street space, and the interaction of all those spaces. And he, through a lot of very um, detailed research, it was actually almost, you know, it took hours and hours. He had university students mapping all these things for him before he started drawing some conclusions about why certain areas work better. And it was about the ability to use a street as almost a living room, where you have some places where you feel secure, others where you can venture out and do other things. But it was actually the living room of the suburb. It wasn't actually the private space mm. of the backyard. That was where people wanted to go and interact and why it worked. So that was your first taste of urban design and planning per se? Because there was a really... In Australia at that time, we hadn't really thought much about it in that way and it was you who brought that back to Australia. Well, Is that it fair to say, the, pi the pioneering that came from that research and thinking? I wasn't the only one. There were a number of people who were looking at that at the time but it was relatively new to Australia, yes. Yeah. Urban design and planning had a very rich history and Australia went back a long way but it was far more... Um, uh, not necessarily Bol's art but it was actually... it was. Um, more grand design. It wasn't urban design on a, on a more fine-grained, human, humanistic yeah, that's scale. that's what I mean. It was the human yeah. approach to how people use public spaces, which I think was different at that time. And, you know, what is it that makes cities work in, in a community sense? It has to be safe. It has to be welcoming. It has to be a place for communities. And a, a good city is really about the people who inhabit it and who visit it. Is it a place that they want to be? Is it the place they want to stay? Um, a poor city is one that people just want to go do business and leave. A great place is a place where people actually want to visit, stay and enjoy. That's fundamentally the difference. And the ways you deliver that is managing the intrusion of cars and vehicles which actually impede that, that amenity. Um, facilitating activities such as cycling and walking, making that enjoyable so people actually want to get out of their cars, making sure that public spaces are sunny and, and um, not windy, making sure that there are places in the street or in the, in the urban fabric where people can feel comfortable sitting and waiting and not feeling as though they're isolated. A lot of um, models for cities have actually been focused on either towers in a field where it feels pretty exposed to actually sit out in the, in the public spaces. People need to have a sense of comfort and the ability to interact. So basically there's a whole series of um, ways of delivering that, but fundamentally it's about the people who live in those cities. Is there an ideal city in the world that does what you think a good city is? I mean, is there a place that does it better than, than others from your experience? 
There are lots of great places in the world. Um, they all do certain things better than others. Um, and I would put into that category, Melbourne's a great city, Sydney's a great city, Copenhagen's a wonderful city. Um, so are parts of London, actually have fabulous attributes. Zurich is actually has the best transport in the world and has a beautiful lake and has very friendly spaces. Um, what I think is a really a good test of the quality and the calibre of city was actually many years ago Copenhagen didn't have a pedestrian centre. It actually was all traffic dominated. They closed off incrementally they closed one of the main streets in the in the old town which is called Stroyet. Um, and eventually the, the pedestrians took it over and they took over all the local squares nearby. And the great um, challenge they had 15 years later, where they had so many people in that town, it was so popular, they now had to actually look at how do we manage the volumes of people who are in our town, in our city. Now, that's a great, great challenge. Great problem. And I do <laughs> hope that we have exactly that thing in Sydney, because Sydney, I think, has huge potential. It has a huge traffic problem. It would be wonderful to have this city where we could all ride our bikes and walk wherever you needed to go. It doesn't matter if it's hilly. We know that in other cities of the world, people use their own legs to move where they want to go in the rain, the sleet. It doesn't stop them. They go up and down hills. They just don't have to put their life at risk when they go on a road fighting with cars. So we need that's our key priority, managing that that. Well, look, let's, let's look at the key problems um, facing Sydney. And I know uh, that you love a good problem. So how, how do we unlock that? How do we unlock the hill problem in Sydney? How do we get people on their feet? Uh, how, do, how do we do it? Okay, interestingly, the hill problem is, is not the whole of Sydney. There's no, Sydney's parts. huge. <laughs> Sydney's huge. And I've got to say, Sydney, quite reasonably, initially was a walking city. We had tracks along the ridges. And there are, if you follow the contour, it's flat. So you can actually go all the way along military road. It's not that hilly. You, might have, you have to go down at the end when you get to Spit Bridge. Or similarly, if you go follow some of the ridges out to the eastern suburbs, it's actually not as hilly as you assume. It's only the last bit or if you go up and down towards the valleys. But um, They're steep. They're steep. They are steep, but it keeps us fit. It does. <laughs> and that's one of the things, I suppose, in making a good city, and keeping one people of, healthy and strong. Yes, it's one of the great investments in our, for our health system for we get people out doing things as opposed to not – if everyone's sort of um, sedentary, it doesn't help. Uh, but Is that a problem? us being unhealthy? I mean, Absolutely. is that one of the problems that a designer has to unlock? Absolutely. The designer, an, urban, an urban planner and an urban designer can absolutely assist in contributing to the opportunities for people to have a healthy lifestyle. Mm. And that's through the ability to make walking interesting, to make walking shaded so that we have, when we talk about green links and a green web for our city, it's not just parks. It means that when we're walking in the streets in the midsummer, we actually have some ability to have shaded spaces which helps a whole lot of things and not just our own health. We know that we have an obesity problem. We know that and, and it's and it's growing. We know that that actually has huge impact and it's actually um, disturbing to see it getting worse even though people are aware of it. It seems to be put in the too hard basket and that's one of our biggest challenges at this point in time. How do we manage our, our, the health of our communities? And it's not just, it is what you eat, but it's also how you live and your lifestyle The design around that. You have this responsibility now as a commissioner at the Greater Sydney Commission. Things like walking 
and keeping us fit and strong, they are all part of the brief? They are. I'm actually a district commissioner for the North District, which covers, means that I'm working with the councils from Sydney Harbour up to Pittwater, from the coast into and including Hornsby and Ride. So it's a large area, quite diverse. Some areas are relatively flat and some are actually very hilly and coastal or, or harbour facing. Uh, it, my, my role is to work with the communities and the councils about how do we live a better Sydney for everyone and, and what can we do in those districts to in support and improve the future development and growth? How do we manage growth better going forwards? So in every major project, we are delivering a much better place than had we not been there. So the general mm. users of cities understand them. It's intuitive. It's intuitive. Well, we've got to unpack that. that. Yes. People, the general users know what parts of a city they like. That's where they want to go. Um, the inner, it's no accident that inner Sydney has actually got a greater density and desirability and inflated prices than other parts of the metropolitan area. It's where they want to be because there's amenity, there's convenience, there's there's a whole lot of other things which you won't get when you're living 30 kilometres out of the CBD. Um, we need to understand what are those attributes and when we develop 30 kilometres out of the CBD, we need to actually ensure that we provide the same amenity and the same sort of opportunities. They won't be identical, of course, but they will be um, great connectivity, great places, great um, living environments, not just sort of a cheaper model for housing. Housing affordability should be open for all, but so should the amenity of living in a city like Sydney. And there are things like being warm, being safe, good light, uh, things that make... Community spaces, activated neighbourhood centres, not empty shops with three things on the shelves, prosperous um, neighbourhoods, places which people can call home, um, and they do, and, they, and working relatively close by so they're not having to commute for an hour and a half every day. It's a really big task. It's a huge task, absolutely We've sort task. of made a mess of it, you know, and we have to unmess it. It will take 40 years before actually Sydney can actually see the merits of what we're doing now. Mm. Um, there's a lot of talk about a 30-minute city, and that's important. But 30 minutes in a car is still a long commute. It's a long time. So that's actually a, an employment commute. Um, we also need 10-minute cities, 15-minute cities around our neighbourhoods, 15-minute neighbourhoods. So you can walk. We all know that no one's going to walk more than 800 metres to get public transport or a, a bottle of milk. So we have to make sure that within that 800 metres, we've got opportunities for them to have that sort of you know, op- you know, amenity. So within that, there's a lot of little spaces that connect to a whole is connect, that the way it works? Connect. Connect is exactly the important word. Yeah. It's how do you connect um, in a public context and in that connection, you're not only connecting from place to place, hopefully you'll be connecting people to people because you'll be out of a car and being able to meet those who live around you. That's important too. Women in the profession, it's, it's hard for women and you've pioneered in many ways... Uh, a role for women. It, it wasn't easy, I must say. Um, but I wasn't the only one. Louise Cox and others in, who were architects early on who who had exactly the same experiences. We often didn't get the same opportunities as the men, our male colleagues, but sometimes we did. Sometimes we got preferential treatment, so it was varied. I think it's a lot healthier now when we see 50% of the enrolments at university or more being women. 
in architecture. That's great. And it's critically important going forwards. But if we want to actually um, benefit from the skills of 50% of our architects as they come out of university, we have to make it happen. It's not going to happen naturally. So it has to be a conscious decision to actually try to keep balance within office environments, try to keep a balanced workforce um, involved in, in employment. And all of this started way back in 1986, I know a little bit before, but with your Byra Hadley scholarship and a trip to Europe. It did. It was a great opportunity. It was actually, um, it was a relatively short trip. I think I went for six or eight weeks. Uh, I did a lot of work. It was a really, um, it was a real luxury and honour to be able to go over there and explore something in detail. It was fairly focused on cooperative housing. So we've gone from cooperative housing to cooperative cities. Yes, it is. That's actually, I've never even thought of it like that. But how do we deliver a city which is better for all of us is exactly what one of our tasks is, probably the key task. When we say all of us, I'm meaning all-inclusive, including commerce and, and um, the environment and the people who live in the cities. How do we do that? That is about cooperative cities. Oh, that's wonderful. Thanks, Deborah. So that was Jan Ryan talking to Dr Deborah Deering uh, from the Greater Sydney Commission. It's pretty amazing to think that following on from her Byra research trip that Deborah and Jan suggested Deborah was a bit of a um, pioneer in the mm. area of urban design and planning in Australia. Um, and she talked and she talks about the idea of collective housing being something that she was studying in the mm. 80s. Gee, that feels like a long time ago now. And it's gaining some momentum again. Mm. Which it's is fresh again. I also like the idea that the cooperative housing has become the cooperative city. You know, the yeah. idea that we that city making can be a collective exercise. Mm. Do you think we're doing that yet, though? Greater Sydney Commission is, you know, a really good mm. start. I think it's great to have Deborah and others mm. who are commissioners leading this. So we'll wait and see. Mm. And you can hear more from other virus scholars on our podcast series in the coming weeks. Jan will be speaking with Hannah Tribe of Tribe Studio, Matt Chan from Scale Architecture, Imogene Tudor, who's currently with Sam Crawford Architects, and Ben Peake, who's almost finished his report from following his scholarship last year and is working for Carter Williamson Architects. You've been listening to Architecture Insights, brought to you by the New South Wales Architects Registration Board. I'm Di Snape.